Our prayer, Father, is that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. God, you have spoken and you've given us this truth. They're bound, these truths are bound in books. Easy access we have to them. We can attend to it anytime we want. Lord, we know that the way the word uh, works on us is when your Holy Spirit takes and plants it in our hearts. And, and we pray that you would do that this morning. A mere man has to declare these truths, Father. Uh, so we pray that your work would transcend the work that I do that your words would be heard more than my words, and that what would happen as a result of this time in your word was, would be that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son, that he would be exalted among us. So make that happen, Father, we pray by your Spirit among us. We ask it through Jesus. Amen. Well, on, uh, on August 3rd, 1963, I was born in a town called Oakville, this is in Ontario, Canada. It's situated on the north shore of Lake Ontario, about halfway between Toronto and Hamilton. My parents were both born in Canada to first-generation Czech immigrants, and those immigrants came seeking religious freedom and prosperity. Now, I don't know much about my grandparents' life from the old country, except that they came from a place called Volinia, which is in present-day Ukraine, and their whole community of Baptists emigrated together to Manitoba, sometime in the uh, late 1920s. Now, I've told you that. It's really a rather unremarkable story, but it's where I came from. And all of those details had some influence on who I am today, and indeed, the kind of legacy that I will leave for those who come after me. And it's true, each of us have a story, where you were born, who your parents were, and a myriad of other details that brought you to where you are right now. And if you could trace your story back, if we could trace our stories back, we'd come to a single point of origin beginning with God. As I said, we're launching into a study in the book of Genesis. But Genesis is really one part of a larger work called the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. It's a story of the people that God set apart for himself. And Genesis is the beginning of that story. And Genesis 1-1 is what happened before that story. Genesis 1-1 is that single point of origin for every other story. It is the story of everything. Now, as we begin this journey through Genesis, we're going to give our focus this morning just to, to what are seven words in the Hebrew. Translated into our language, it reads, and hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're just dealing with that today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the story of everything. And in this story, the main character... I realize to say it that way seems diminishing. The main actor, that's not much better. The main focus is God. So as we look closely at these seven words, at least in the Hebrew, these seven words, I'm going to give you my simple outline as we take a look at this passage of Scripture, this, what I believe is the story of everything. Simple outline. God is. Second, God is 
creates. And third, God reveals. God is, God creates, and God reveals. First, God is. Now, uh, overnight, some white stuff showed on the ground, and there's still some white stuff on the ground. And we can easily agree that it is snow, right? It is self-evident. Nobody needs to prove that it is snow. Now, look with me. Here's what happened. It's white because, no, it is self-evident. It's self-evident in the same way that I'm standing up here as a human. I don't have to prove that I'm not a horse. It is, now some might think I'm the backside of one, but that's another story. I don't have to prove it. I am a human. Things that are self-evident are obvious to all and need no particular evidence. Now, if we ask the, ask the question, how do we come to understand that God is? Now, many have approached the topic from a philosophical perspective, wanting to understand how we come to know that God is. Some have arrived at that conclusion, as I said, through philosophy. There's the ontological argument. The idea from being itself, or the cosmological argument, or the causal argument as it's ca called, or the teleological, or the moral argument. Maybe you've heard these categories, and, and I used to teach uh, philosophy at, uh, at Grace University, teach these things. These arguments have merit, but they're arguments for God from the perspective of creation. It's us in this thing looking out and saying, Hmm, I think there's a God. There is being, there is stuff, there is purpose, there is morality, therefore God. But if we look at Genesis, from the perspective of Genesis, it's really the other way around. God is. God is, therefore, being. God is, therefore, stuff, therefore, purpose, therefore, morality. In short, God is self Evident. He is not proved by the writer of Genesis. His existence is not defended. He is simply assumed and declared because, in the beginning, God. So, who is it that began this story of everything? What is God like? And I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, this morning, that it is good to think about this because I think at times our conception of God is often way too small. Now, for some, the concepts, thinking about God, they might seem hard to get our minds around these things, but I want to suggest to you that they're worthwhile because these truths about God are glorious. Because if your understanding of God is very small, I would suggest to you that your faith is going to be very small. So we want to get a big view of God, and I, I believe we get one from just simply looking at this first verse of the Bible, this first verse in Genesis. So let's see how God truly is. Now, the fact that before creation, God is, it means as we read this, as we unpack this story, that there are logically necessary implications to say God is, that is to say before creation, there are necessary implications that are purely logical. So in the beginning, God, what that means to us is that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. You know, it's, it's true that anything we see, look around, anything we see, 
we assume that someone made it. We assume that there was a point of origin, a beginning. Logic demands that things that exist had to be given existence by someone or something else, right? Because nothing is self-generating. No things that we see are self-generating. And it's true of the, the, the cell phone you carry in your pocket. It's true of the whole universe, and it is true of you. You and I are not self-generating, and we get that. We came from parents who came from other parents who came from, and on and on and on. And for there to be anything, anything at all, there has to be an ultimate point of origin, a person that is self-existent, an intelligence and a, and a power that has always been. Genesis 1 tells us that God is the one who determined the beginning of all things, from which we can simply affirm that God is self-existent. And the, the technical term for that, if you're writing these things down, is aseity. Aseity. Now listen, if we think about God's self-existence, we can draw some other conclusions, some other implications, can't we? Because God is self-existent, he needs nothing to exist. He is self-sufficient. He is completely autonomous. He is absolutely and wholly independent. So he needs nothing from his creations to exist. As the Lord said to Job, it's in Job uh, 41, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So, what this means, if God is self-existent, we can understand rightly that God cannot become. He cannot develop. He will not grow or change. Because God is self-existent, he cannot cease to exist. He cannot not be. And there never was when God was not. There never was when God was not, and there never will be when God is not, which means he is eternal. You know, when, when God revealed his divine name to Moses, Moses asked, you're sending me to, to your people. Who should I tell them is sending me? The Lord said, Exodus 3, 14, tell them, I am, has sent me to you. I am. Now, it seems grammatically odd to us, but God could not say to Moses, tell them I was, because that would imply a difference between the present and the past. God could not say, I will, because that would imply that some deficiency in the present, that he's becoming something else in the future. God is I am. Who he is, is I am. He is being. He is complete. He is self-existent. And that is his nature. But given that God is, is before creation, it also means that God is other, other. This is a truth derived from comparison, right? The Bible word for this, holy, holy. He is holy, meaning he is unlike anything else. God's holiness, his otherness is in every respect. His essence, his character, his nature. God has no suitable analogy in creation. And his holiness, by comparison to us, is often expressed in the Bible 
as his moral goodness because we are not morally good. And so while we're not like God because of our relationship to him as his people, he can and indeed does command us to be like him in holiness, to be morally good like he is. God is other. God is holy. Because he is before creation, because he is self-existent, God is personal. The very nature of the fact that we have Genesis 1.1 tells us that our God is personal. So Genesis, it was written by Moses. But it's God's project, isn't it? Through Moses. He gave Moses the task of writing this down. And the fact that we are told by God that he is in the beginning means that God wants us to know him. Now, it's not here in the text. But another place in the Bible that God tells us about the beginning is John. And we, we recited that together moments ago. God reinforces what he has revealed about himself since the beginning Let's look at that again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Again, we're talking about the God being personal with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What God begins to tell us in the beginning of the creation story is that he wants us to know him. He is personal. And all of human history unfolds to one day reveal to to us the word of God, who was God, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. God is so personal to us that he became flesh. And Jesus, the Son of God, lived among us that we might see his glory, that we might know him as he is, that we might experience his grace. And let me ask you this morning, do you know God personally? That's God. That's what he is like. He wants us to personally know him. And that he wants us to personally know him should order everything in our lives. Let me ask you, is your God small? Get a big view of God. Just ponder Genesis 1.1. Well, second, God creates. God creates. Well, I enjoy a a good Disney movie as much as the next toddler. Um, But... I don't know if you're with me on this, but I can't help to think that the Disney Corporation has an agenda to weaken our faith in God and turn a generation of children to idols. I know, lots of Disney fans here. People go to the Temple of the Mouse routinely. I know. <laughs> but that, that statement might seem to you like hyperbole, right? But I, I've got one example that's swimming around in my mind. The movie Moana. It's very entertaining, but this demigod, Maui, sings this very catchy tune. And I'm going to curse you with this going through your head for the rest of the day, I know. What can I say except, you're welcome for the tides, the sun, the sky. You're welcome. (laughs) 
He's claiming ownership and gifting of these things. You know, you watch that movie and you just sing along. You're singing along with a blasphemous lie. I know you're going to stop yourself next time, aren't you? <laughs> I do now. It's like, what? It's so catchy. Well, of course, this isn't new, is it? It's not new. Scientists have been desperate for any explanation for the universe that does not rest on the existence of God. And for those of you who studied this stuff, I'm going to name some off. Here's seven. I just looked this up quickly, and I, and I kind of did a scan through them to see what they think. There's the theory of eternal inflation. Catch the word eternal. There's conformal cyclic model. There's black hole mirage. There's plasma universe theory. There's slow freeze theory. There's Hindu cosmology, also called the infinite cyclical model. There's the steady state universe. Okay, these are theories. Now, I'm no expert, obviously, in this area of study, but looking at these theories, as I looked at the details of them, there was a common theme, a common theme in these theories. Each of these theories seems to assume that the universe itself is either self-existent or eternal or infinite. Interesting, isn't it? The very character qualities of God for the sake of a theory of where this thing comes from, are assigned to the thing. So instead of accepting the truth that there is a powerful organizing mind outside of the universe, in an effort to explain an ordered universe without God, the universe becomes God. Now maybe I'm too much of a simpleton on these things, and I certainly would be to debate these guys, but to me, as I think about it, it was more believable. An eternal universe that created within itself man, man that seems more intelligent than the universe itself, is that more believable? Or a God who is outside of creation? Well, Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, first, what happened in creation? God created time in the beginning. It marks a, a first point in a chronology. He created time. So God is before time, and God is outside of time. He's not subject to time. We are, but he is outside of it. He assigned this starting point, and we'll see through the rest of Genesis 1 that God will ultimately provide a way for man to mark time. Morning, evening, morning, first day. So God created time, but God also created space, the heavens and the earth. Now, these things probably seem obvious to you, but those words could be translated in a smaller sense, sky and land. In the Hebrew, there's, there's you know, the context determines what it, what it's going to be applied here, sky and land. But taken together, those two words imply what is above and what is here. In a sense, everything. So what God is saying, what Genesis 1-1 is saying is that God created everything. And he did it in the beginning when he created time. So what are the implications of God as creator of time and space? 
God creates means that God owns it. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's. The fullness, everything in it, and those who dwell within. The stuff is God's. The people are God's. It's all his. He founded it. So you and I, we're part of creation. So, like I said, God owns us as well. And what we do in and with creation must be submitted to what God wants because he's the owner, right? Now, we're going to talk more about stewardship of creation in the weeks ahead, but for now, God gets to decide what he does with his creation. And if God owns it, and if God made it, then God is also in control of it. And here's an important thing. Creation itself tells us that God is sovereign. It's a necessary outworking of the fact that he made it. God created this finely tuned universe. But yes, there is evil in the world, isn't there? It's a curse on the world because of the sin of the first man and woman. But it's a curse on the world because of our continuing sin. Now, we're going to deal with that as well in a few weeks. But we are both the cause of evil in the world and the victims of it. And I think we can all agree, right? But God is sovereign over that too. If God made it, he made it in such a way as he understands what corrupts it. And if God is sovereign, then there isn't anything out of his control, even evil. Evil is not outside of God's control. God is sovereign over it. So what is evil? Now, also another obvious question, right? But evil is both the intentional disobedience to God's laws, so it's when we disobey God, that's evil, when we blaspheme him, when we break his law. But it's also the corrupting effect on the world of that disobedience. Again, we'll get to that in a few weeks. So murder, evil. Hurricanes, evil. Warring nations, evil. Tornadoes, corrupt governments, floods, Christians persecuted for their faith. Human trafficking, disease, cancer, heart disease, COVID-19. Evil. Now, maybe you think that evil in the world is out of control. That God, I mean, you wouldn't say it this way. But we fret a little bit. And, and I'm in this camp too. Sometimes I fret. Evil in the world seems out of control. I need to be reminded that God is sovereign. And again, how we respond to evil around us when it invades our lives or when we see it around us how we respond. I mean, this is, this is a rebuke on me. I was, uh, I was with Davey Lee, pastor at uh, Center Baptist, uh, this uh, last Wednesday. And he said, you know, folks in my church are fretting. And I was fretting too. Worrying about the outcome of the election. We're going to lose some religious freedom or, or the fact that their agenda seems to be so pro-abortion. And I was fretting. Davey said, I was rebuked by this. He wasn't trying to rebuke me. It was just a fact. He said, God's got that too. And listen, while it's today, we can still preach the gospel. Nobody's stopping us. So I'm not fretting. I looked down and I thought, well, I guess I shouldn't be fretting either. 
God is sovereign, right? It's not like God is, you know, playing whack-a-mole. Oh, there's an evil thing. Boom, got that. Oh, there's something else, and it pops up. Just kind of stay ahead of it. No. It pops up. God's aware. He knew it would pop up. God knew about the pandemic. God knew about the election. If God is sovereign, God rules over creation. And so nothing can be outside of his control. So if some evil befalls you and you or a loved one dies, is God in control of that? Well, yes. If you're hit by lightning or you get in a car accident or violence from a band of raiders, like happened to Job and his family, we have to be able to say that God is in control. It's his creation. Everything in it is his. He runs it. So we have to acknowledge that, well, God knows this is happening, and he permitted it for some reason. So, yes, there's evil in the world. But do we live like God is in control? Like I said, I've been thinking a lot about this. We who know that God is sovereign, we should live differently in the world, shouldn't we? We who know God is sovereign, we don't panic if the climate changes and the oceans rise, right? We don't panic. Or if an asteroid is hurtling towards our planet, or if the new president doesn't care about religious liberty, or if the stock market crashes, or if there is a pandemic, God is in control of his creation. And yes, we've been entrusted with a measure of dominion and responsibility. So if it is in our power to suppress evil, we do what we can. But we know God is still in control. So yes, take cover during the tornado. Get the vaccine if you think it's going to help. And if you're smart enough, maybe you're going to be involved in developing vaccines. Do it. But God is sovereign over you. And because God is sovereign, and, and this is the sense that I've been thinking about this, because God is sovereign, don't trade away God's gifts because of the fear of dying. God has that day in a book. It's already written down. You're not going to change it. In Acts chapter 12, and I, and I, I take the practice of the apostles as understanding, again, the story of everything. God's in charge of creation. Acts chapter 12, James, one of the apostles, was put to death by Herod. God was sovereign over that. Now, what did Peter do? Did he go into hiding to be safe? No. He continued to minister. Now, somebody might say, well, that's foolish. You might die. Well, Jesus told him that he would die. So, maybe this will be the day. But we all know we're going to die, right? Now, he was in prison, but the Lord rescued him. God is in control. But if the Lord did not rescue him, would God not be in control? Of course not. And looking through history, religious uh, pilgrims seeking religious freedom, they came to these shores and they, they settled at Plymouth. You know the story. Half of the people who came on the Mayflower died in the first year. Now we look back on history fondly saying, wow, they were, they were pioneers and they, they struck out for a, for a great cause. Were they fools? More came. <laughs> Many of them died. Some thought it wasn't safe. But God was in control. They lived their lives. We might die. 
So in a pandemic, do we go to church? And I know I've been on this because I've been lamenting. You know, we might get COVID and die. But you might die in the ride here in the car. And now each of you have your own reasons for threshold of risk, but, but I fear some among us have chosen physical safety over your own spiritual health. And I know for a fact that some have wandered away or in, and, and right now in a spiritual wasteland and withering. Is God in control of creation? Do you believe God rules over your circumstances? Now, like I said, everybody has their own reasons, and I'm not judging you if you feel it's wise to stay home. That's your decision. But is God sovereign? Is he sovereign over the virus? We may die. But we may do a lot of other things that would cause us to die. The implications that God made it means God's in charge of it. And whether we live or die, God's got that too. For the people of God, we have a hope that is beyond this life, don't we? If we cling, I mean, we understand why the world clings so tightly. We've got to conquer the virus. We'll get this done. Oh, I hope that's the case. But we may die. And that's ultimately in God's hands. And ultimately, if you belong to the Lord, that's okay. Certainly a lot less risky than the pilgrims and the Mayflower, by comparison. Well, there are people who refuse to acknowledge God as creator, and that's a dangerous place to be. They've tried to write God out of their own stories, not realizing that they've been written into God's story. Apostle Paul says, talks about the danger of that in Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the very fact of creation should cause us to conclude that God is the God who made everything. He is the creator it's not an intellectually challenging fact, the Apostle Paul says. It should be obvious, God's eternal power, his divine nature, they are clearly seen. There is no excuse for seven different theories on the origin of the universe. No excuse. But here is the trajectory of corruption that happens in the human mind and the human heart for those who reject God as creator. The Apostle Paul continues, Romans 1. 28 to 30, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the trajectory for the human heart, for the one who refuses to acknowledge that God created everything and owns it. So if you're listening, 
you're out here in the audience or listening at home, this is the time to submit to God, to acknowledge his rule over all things, to acknowledge your failure to live up to his holy righteous standard, to acknowledge your need for divine help in the person of Jesus who went to the cross to bear the full punishment for your own sin. This is the time to put your faith in him and acknowledge who God is. Well, finally, God reveals. Story about everything tells us that God reveals. Now, some of you do woodwork, others decorate cakes, some knit and sew, others write stories or songs, write melodies, take photographs. And you do what you do for some reason, right? You make that table so you can sit at it and eat your meals, a shelf for your books, a sweater to wear, or a dress. The purpose may be purely aesthetic, just for the joy and the beauty, or it could be all of the above, right? Well, when we ask the question, why, why creation? Why is this thing here? Now, it's not directly in our text, but I believe it is implied. This last week when we were talking about this text in our sermon powwow, Bobby said, God is putting on a show. And I like that. It was almost the title. <laughs> you see, creation is about God's glory. But I want to offer that God has a particular way that he wants to show his glory. We sang about it a few moments ago. The purpose of creation is ultimately to demonstrate his own glory through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, talking about Christ. For, this is 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. Nothing's outside of all things. It's everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Creation is from Jesus. It is through Jesus. It is to Jesus for his glory forever. When John, the gospel writer, introduced Jesus, and we quoted this earlier, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're told in Colossians that He, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, and here's the key, and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In creation, God has spoken this thing into existence. He's populated the planet with us, all for the singular purpose of revealing his glory, putting that on display so that we would see in Christ, up close and personal, the very character and beauty, and glory, and grace, and mercy, and justice of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God did this to reveal his Son 
to us. Creation is this grand canvas for God to paint this living picture of his grace, to paint the beauty of his justice and mercy, to show the wisdom and the power and the glory and the eternal beauty of Jesus so that we, his people, would treasure him above everything else. That's the story of everything. And I wonder, would you count yourself part of that story right now? Have you looked to Christ? God has put him on display for you. He is allowed in his sovereign plan, his own son, to suffer the brutality of a Roman cross in death. But the greater suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ was not that physical suffering, but to have my sins and yours heaped upon him at that cross and to bear before all creation and before God the Father himself the very curse that belonged to each of us. That's what creation's for, so you could see him. And gloriously, he went to the tomb and he left the consequence and the power of that sin there for all who would look to him in faith. And he emerged from that tomb on the third day so that you and I could look beyond this crumbling world to an eternal life in close fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. The beginning of the story ends there. I trust by faith you have found yourself in God's grand story. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are in control. We are grateful that you need nothing from us to exist. We are grateful that you created this globe, this universe. And most of all, we're grateful that you, you gave us a way to see you in all of your beauty and glory. And not only to see you, but, be, but to be drawn to you and brought into your family. Oh Lord, help us as your people to live in light of your sovereign governance over all things, your ownership of our very lives. Help us to live in light of the fact that you have done all of this to reveal your son. So the only right response for us is to believe and bow down before him. May that be the expression of our lives until Christ returns. And we pray in his name. Amen.